Welcome to Oncology Today, key presentations on multiple myeloma presented at the 2021 American Society of Hematology meetings. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. For this program, I met with Dr. Ajay Chari from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai to discuss recent data from trials in the frontline and relapse myeloma settings. In addition to this audio podcast, there's also a corresponding video program with Dr. Chari's slide presentation. To begin, I asked them to provide a global perspective on the papers presented at ASH. Let's talk about upfront therapy upfront. Can you kind of just sort of globally looking back at ASH, reflect upon sort of the themes or the new things that came out relevant to this? Sure. I think for the transplant ineligible population, the evolution of treatment was treatment to progression, but it's got to be tolerable, not beating everybody up with full intensity forever. I think we now have seen, there's a thought of that triplets might be better than doublets, but there's always been this concern about frailty. And is that true for all older patients? And I think we saw some differences about that with the various dosing and schedule approaches of bortezomib. But RVD light is probably what many people were doing for the relatively fit it's transplant ineligible patient. And the, the, basically the two contenders that are really fighting in the ring were RVD light versus DARA-RD. And I think some like the old, some want a new, and the early versus late adopters. And I think what we learned at ASH, if you keep in mind the ability to give the regimen as intended from the initial studies, the amount of data. So the VRD light is actually single arm phase two versus Maya randomized phase three, unprecedented PFS with DRD. I think we heard from Dr. Fonseca's presentation, albeit it wasn't a uh, prospective study, it was an indirect comparison, but it kind of supports what we've seen from all around the world. There is no point of saving your good drugs till later, particularly in older patients, because not everybody's going to live to their second line of therapy between their comorbidities and disease. Sometimes you only get one chance to hit a patient well, and it doesn't mean you have to use all drugs forever, but I think that study supports this frontline CD38 and not saving it for later. Yeah, and I really love the way you sort of conceptualize this on your slides, focusing on PFS. And it also gets into, you know, another question that's for so many years that I've had myself, and I know general oncologists do, which is the myeloma communities kind of focus on just driving the tumor down any way they can, as many drugs as they can, sort of the Sagar-Lineal iceberg type of concept. And yet another part, particularly solid tumor oncology, granted completely different diseases, we take more of an approach, well, this is we can't cure this, let's try to use the least amount of therapy possible that'll keep the patient alive for as long a period of time. Why is it that you all are so focused on driving you know, MRD? It seems like more than survival. It's a great question. Let me start with, I think, I'm very also interested in real-world analyses because we do all of these pivotal phase three studies. And then when you look at real-world, the duration of therapy is dismal. At best, maybe 40 to 50%. So we set up patients for these, you know, like that Forte study. I can't think of a patient, especially in the era of COVID, that's going to go in for twice-weekly carfilzomib for a whole year. It's just not palatable, and not to mention the cost. But the issue is, I think, we do need to do these studies, but there was a really good study to your question from LaRocca that came out in blood, which is a planned dose attenuation. So we know that RD is better than historic regimens like MPT, but what they showed is if you plan to dose attenuate the lenalidomide and eliminate the DEX after an initial debulking period, 
those patients actually have less drug discontinuation. So I think the message for especially transplant ineligible patients is you hit them well, get the disease under control, keep in mind that myeloma, and these are patient-driven studies as well, patients' quality of life is actually impaired by the disease. Hypercalcemia, renal failure, anemia, bone disease impairs quality of life as well. So you need to get rid of those symptoms and but it doesn't mean you have to keep everybody on full intensity forever. And I personally think as soon as for these older patients, you dose attenuate, once you've gotten a good plateau and disease control, pick the drugs, eliminate the DEX, which is every patient's worst medication, and then pick the regimen that's the most tolerable. And in fact, some post-hoc analysis of Maya even showed that in patients who got DRD and then actually discontinued lenalidomide for intolerance or side effects, they did just as well. Now, admittedly, that's not a prospective study because it really should be randomized, but it tells us that as long as you're able to continue some type of anti-myeloma therapy, you're going to do well for that patient. So another point that you made, and I thought it was really interesting as you looked at the trials where proteasome inhibitors were added on in older people, was the question of how much proteasome inhibitors older people really can handle, how much can they actually receive, how much benefit are they really getting in reality, particularly when it's used up front. What's your take on that, particularly as people get 75, 80, 85, 90 even? How much PI can you get in them? Yeah, I think the study that best highlights that is that SWOG 77 study, which is the VRD versus RD and without the intent to transplant. Admittedly, now this is a median age of 63, so not truly the older population. But what's interesting about that is twice-weekly bortezomib. And yes, you hit the response benefit. Yes, you hit the PFS benefit. Yes, you even hit the OS benefit. However, when you drill down to the older population, they did not have the OS benefit. And I think it's hard to give twice-weekly bortezomib. And I think the message should be for older patients, I don't want people to come away with the number of drugs. I think it's the dose intensity. Older patients deserve deep and rapid responses, but they deserve that without at the expense of toxicity. And particularly now with the monoclonal antibodies, adding a CD30 monoclonal antibody does not add a lot of toxicity to an RD backbone. So yes, it's a triplet, but it's not the same kind of triplet as adding twice-weekly bortezomib. So we can't lump all triplets into one basket. And I think it has to be nuanced and you have to think about the dose and schedule. And I would also add a cautionary tale that I almost never use full-dose lenalidomide in an older patient because it just is going to create more anemia, more intolerance. I'd rather give a lower dose and keep them on it. So I think it just speaks to managing, as we all have to do in community oncology, keeping in mind a lot of this, the folks that community docs are treating are not going to be coming and eligible for randomized phase three studies. And in fact, we've shown that up to 40 to 50% of real-world patients aren't even eligible for these studies. What about anti-CD38 plus uh, RVD or KRD in older patients? What kind of maintenance therapy do you use in that situation? And how do you determine whether you're going to go full-blown with, for example, RVD-DARA? Yeah, it's a great question. We actually have an IIT because I think looking at DARA VRD light, because if we all agree that historically no one was doing twice-weekly VRD, the backbone on which to build is not twice-weekly BRD, but VRD light. And so if we think that DARA to RD makes sense, why not add DARA to VRD light? And we are doing that. But I think first point I would make is if the PFS of Maya is already over 56 months, that's a really high benchmark. You're going to have to do a lot to do much better than that. And I don't know that the typical older patient needs more than 56 months because you can always salvage and do other things. I think the unmet needs would really be the high-risk patients, right? So if I think 
clearly, if you have a high-risk elderly patient, let's say 17P deletion, extramedullary disease, then I think it's reasonable to do Dara VRD light. And so what we've done in our protocol is to do Dara VRD light for a year, and then we maintain on Daralen after that. And so we'll have to see how the results pan out. What's uh, the presumed benefit of adding Dara in high-risk patient, for example, 17P? What do we know about? Is it sort of risk agnostic or does the benefit go down? I think we were all hoping that a monoclonal antibody would be risk agnostic, but the reality is that has not been borne out. This is an important distinction because we talk about high risk and it really should be done in the right way. All these agents are improving high-risk patients, so they're doing better than they would have with the control regimen, but they're still not doing as well as standard risk. So we're improving but not overcoming. And I think the other problem is that the high risk, it's never powered to answer that question because these are large studies with, say, 300 patients, and you have a small subset that are high risk and you have wide confidence intervals. So when there have been meta-analyses done, you're able to see benefit in high risk that you weren't able to see in the single agent study. So I think part of it is the right study design. Part of it is the power to answer these questions. I certainly don't think DARA hurts high risk. I have no problem using it. Would I say that DARA VRD is overcoming high risk? Also, no. In general, when you use uh, DARA VRD, what kind of maintenance approach do you take? That's a great question. I think LEN maintenance is very evidence-based, right? Because there were some naysayers initially, but when you have PFS benefit and an OS benefit, it kind of puts everything to rest. But it also has shown that when we know from the relapse myeloma studies that when a patient is LEN refractory, it worsens the outcomes. Even in, for example, Castor, where DVD had a median PFS of 16 months, but if a patient was LEN refractory, it was like nine months. And so when you're using a drug to progression in the maintenance setting, we have to keep in mind the PFS2 or the impact on overall survival. Because we have good data for LEN, I have no problem using LEN till progression and maintenance because we know that there's an OS benefit. Now, when we go to the CD38, it's much more murky question, right? Because we have the two studies, Cassiopeia and Griffin. Cassiopeia took a different approach where in the main, not everybody got maintenance. So it was only, you could get DARA up front or you could get DARA and maintenance, or both or neither. So that's a different question. And the, we don't have mature data yet for long-term follow-up. And the Griffin took a different approach. It was DARA and induction and consolidation and maintenance. However, the DARA is only for two years. So we'll have to see what happens with these longer follow-up because Griffin patient in the US per study design is not going to be CD38 refractory necessarily at the time of relapse because they will have had discontinued DARA after two years. I think to answer your question, we're going to need to use DARA with LEN till progression to really see if that is worth it. Because if we know that LEN refractoriness is worth it because there's an OS benefit, do we want CD38 refractoriness without the OS documentation first? Sort of side question, where is, are you and your center in terms of sub-Q DARA? You pretty much use it all the time or, or in certain specific situations? We were involved in the initial phase one study, and I have to say it's the easiest study to consent patients to, but it probably has the least impact for physicians, right? But name a patient that says, okay, you have a drug that's equal efficacy, safer, because the IR is less than 10% versus 40 to 50%. Your median first dose infusion time is three to five minutes versus six to eight hours. What patient would not want that? So I think it's better for patients, it's better for nursing, and it's better for pharmacy. For the physicians who are writing the orders, it has the least benefit. But I think we've switched completely. And I would just add in the era of COVID, you want to protect your nursing team and patients as well to avoid 
extended time in the infusion centers. So you were talking about the Cassiopeia trial, and there was some data presented at ASH that you talked about on MRD. I would like you to comment on, because I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, I think the superficial take-home message from Cassiopeia was that if you look at the PFS curves, those patients who got DARA up front did not have any benefit from DARA in the maintenance setting. And it only benefited those who did not get DARA up front. So that was a simplistic take-home message. Everybody said, oh, you know what? You either need DARA up front or in maintenance. But we have to keep in mind that when we interpret randomized phase three studies, you got to look at the median follow-up and what the endpoint is. These are patients who are doing amazingly well. They got quadruplet induction, they got transplant, and they're getting longer follow-up. You're going to need longer follow-up to really see PFS play out. And that's what the purpose of this presentation was that, okay, we know that PFS is going to take a longer readout. Let's get a crystal ball window into that with the MRD negativity. DARA and maintenance did overcome not having DARA in the observation arm. So this is an important other distinction that the control arm, because this study was designed a while ago, was not with LEN maintenance. So it was just observation. So it's a little bit easier to do better than nothing than it is to do better than LEN maintenance. Then when we look at one-year MRD negativity, this is super important. One of my pet peeves is that MRD negativity, people put it into this mystical box for myeloma. MRD negativity in myeloma is not the same as PCR negativity in CML. It's just a surrogate endpoint. And so we need to put a caveat that MRD negativity must be sustained and eventually it does not supersede the need for PFS and OS follow-up. With those caveats, let's look at sustained MRD negativity. One year, highest to lowest, 48% down to 21%. At the two-year sustained MRD negativity, again, same trend, nothing different. And so my interpretation of this is that the MRD negativity is the best when you use it upfront and in maintenance. And so the study does not answer the question of if you use DARA with LEN maintenance about the synergy, because we know that LEN maintenance from several studies not only extends your PFS, but extends your OS. In the US, we routinely have been using LEN, and actually it's also now approved in Europe. So we'll look at the Griffin study coming up, but I think this does say that if you use DARA up front, some of the people have been interpreting it as that you don't need it in maintenance if you got it up front. But if you didn't get it up front, then you should get it in maintenance. The only caveat I would put on that is I think we need longer follow-up. If you believe in MRD negativity as a surrogate, the regimen that has most MRD negativity should eventually get better PFS. And it's just we need longer follow-up because keep in mind, these patients are doing very well because they're getting effective therapy. And the cynical is when has more drug not been better? Maybe not more with five drugs together, but this maintenance typically, I think the only pushback in the era of thalidomide maintenance there was an impairment of quality of life, which is why it never took off. But we'll have to see whether that PFS is justified, keeping in mind, especially our European colleagues are much more cost constrained. So they may be very judicious. And how much PFS benefit is the question that would that would justify ongoing DARA? It's so interesting. I know for general medical oncologists, because they hear the CLL people talking about MRD and they hear the myeloma people talking and we're trying to kind of come to sort of a more global understanding of where that strategy fits in or where it's going to fit in the future. What about this master study that you uh, were commented on in your talk, you know, MRD-guided use of, I guess, uh, DARA-KRD? Yeah, this is our first kind of prospective risk-adapted study because a lot of the studies are post-hoc. My pet peeve with that is people who do better always do better. So you need to do these discontinuation studies. If we're going to move away from treating everybody forever, this is the right study to do that. And they did DKRD up front with transplant, and then 
in the consolidation, they used MRD to guide how much CARE-RD was needed. And the good risk patients did very well from both a PFS and OS perspective, but the true ultra high risk, which is defined as two or more abnormalities, had an impairment in their PFS and OS curves. And I think you made this interesting analogy to CLL, and I've been at some ASH meetings where we compare heme malignancies. And myeloma is a unique disease in terms of, it is really a blend of a solid and a liquid tumor, right? Because you have patients who can have macrofocal disease that lights up on a PET scan, but a blind biopsy in the marrow may miss that. And CLL, I suppose you could have lymph nodes, but CML, for example, you don't typically see that. So I think in myeloma, one of the limitations of MRD is you have to go through the intellectual. And I would particularly caution from community bedside decision-making because you need to be SPEP, IFE, UPEP, IFE, light chain negative, and imaging negative. And then if your bone marrow is negative and it's a good quality aspirate and it's 10 to the minus sixth, you're halfway there. But then the other question is, is it sustained MRD? Because just having a single time point is not enough. And I think what the master study has shown already is that the high-risk patients we have not overcome even with DKRD, even with unprecedented MRD negativity at a single time point, it did not pan out to sustain PFS and OS benefit. And my prediction is that that story will also show up for the standard risk patients. It's just going to happen later out. But I don't think that with the current drugs, we've cured myeloma yet. And I don't think we can say that two MRD negative time points means you're cured and you can discontinue all therapy. That's just my prediction, but we'll have to see what longer follow-up, at least not with the current drugs that we're using. I mean, I don't know that at least in terms of that particular point, it's that much different than CLL, but I guess the thought is that maybe you technically aren't going to cure them, but you delay the disease from progressing long enough that they can die of something else. But one other thing I was going to ask you about, ESA VRD, was that presented before or ASH was the first time? It has been presented before, and I think it was more response rates. And there's also that the Europeans have also presented that for high-risk subgroups. But I think this was clearly a randomized phase three, and it's also been presented as phase two. But this was the first readout of their primary endpoint of MRD negativity after induction, which was significant, 81 versus 51%. I just think we should be cautious with comparing to other studies because the number of chemotherapy cycles is really different across the regimens. And it's certainly good. What it means for PFS has to be determined. I don't know how long or even if they're working on a sub-Q formulation of ESA, but it would have to be a whole lot better to flip into IV at this point. Is uh, ESA going to have sub-Q? They're working on it, but it's still not close. Yeah, I agree. I think it's an uphill battle to try to replace such a convenient product. With the only other exception, again, if the cost. But I think from an efficacy, we're not seeing major differences. And the toxicity, we're not seeing major differences. So it'll probably be a convenience and cost that are going to be the determining factors. Is there a cost issue at this point? Is it less uh, costly? No. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. And it's not approved yet for frontline therapy. It's approved for relapsed disease. Well, let's talk about some of the papers from ASH uh, that you commented on in relapse disease. And one that I thought was really interesting relates to Selenexer. First of all, I've been still trying to figure out why and how Selenexer works. I love the graphic you showed there. And there was a paper presented, Ash, looking at the issue of Selenexer and with dour refractoriness. But could you just kind of go back over the way Selenexer works? I guess it's completely unique. And why it's, I know it prevents, I guess, nuclear export of proteins, but why differentially does that end up having an anti-tumor effect? Is there a greater effect in myeloma cells? 
Yeah, I think it's a great question. Interestingly, first, it's worth mentioning XPO1 has shown efficacy in lymphomas, gynecologic malignancies, also, I think, head and neck tumors. So it's not unique to myeloma, but it's probably the most advanced in myeloma. And basically, I think myeloma cells are basically protein factories, right? They're antibody factories. And I think when you block these export, the presumption is these specific targets would be the oncoprotein mRNA. The glucocorticoid receptor is also very important. We know that when you add dexamethasone to cell next year, you do get more efficacy. So some of that is pharmacodynamic benefit from that combination approach that you may not see as much in, say, solid tumors. So that may be part of the story because we know that glucocorticoids are part of it. But I think the retention of 17P is interesting because in the Boston study comparing SVD to VD, there seemed to be a particular benefit in that 17P retention. So recognizing that 17P is a complex target, not everybody is biallelic deletion. So if you have a monoallelic or you have some functional P53 and you're retaining that, that may have significant benefit for patients to put the brakes on the cancer. So I think it's really novel MOA. And what this study showed was basically that when they looked at biomarkers, it's a ex vivo study in the lab that showed that when you look at GDP and protein expression, the salinexor seemed to have a particular benefit in patients who had been in DARA, the immediate prior line of therapy. And that's important, especially in light of our earlier discussion, if more and more patients are going to be CD38 refractory after earlier lines of therapy. Right now, we have those big five drugs of Len, Palm, Ortezomib, Carfilzomib, and DARA. And the question is, what do you do after that? And in contrast to the CELI, there's the converse is like elotuzumab, for example, because DARA does deplete NK cells as well. So you need potentially three to six months to recover NK cell. And elotuzumab is an antibody that depends on NK cell function. So these are some of the things that we need to understand when we start sequencing our drugs, because you can't just throw everything whenever you want. And I think we need these kinds of studies to guide rational sequencing. Myeloma seems to get more and more complicated. I remember when I was a fellow over 20 years ago, we had steroids and conventional chemotherapeutics. And now we have these six different classes of drugs, IMIDs, proteasome inhibitors, a very heterogeneous category of immunologic approaches, including naked antibodies, antibody drug conjugate and CAR-T, and an XPO1 inhibitor. So the question always becomes, how do you use these agents? Which combinations? Which sequences? Because we keep adding drugs, but we never figure out how to use them strategically. And so I think in this year's ASH, there's some hint about sequencing coming through, and of course, always the interest in novel agents and novel approaches. I'm curious where you are today in terms of using cell and extra, and particularly how you find the tolerability, how you use it, whether you use it in combination or not. Docs in practice have a lot of questions about that. The initial New England paper that we were also involved in that led to the approval, which is the STORM study, was very heavily treated patients. And as I alluded to, the prognosis was less than six months. And so that was Celinexor with dexamethasone. And the purpose of that was an accelerated approval, 80 milligrams twice weekly. And there was significant toxicity, which can be basically broken down into GI slash nausea and weight loss, heme tox, platelets, and then fatigue. We published a study actually at Sinai that, and I just give kudos to our nurses. So we actually had almost a quarter of the entire global study at Sinai, so about 30 patients out of 120. And our response rate was double. So the response rate was 26%. Ours was 56, 50 plus percent. Our PFS was better. Our OS was better. Clearly the OS could be coming from clinical trials, but why is the response rate better? And I think the answer is we were very proactive. We told the patients, look, this is these are the side effects. We're going to have you come in frequently at the beginning. We're going to start you on multi-antimedic therapy. And then as soon as we get the 
disease under control, we're going to attenuate your dosing. And with that strategy, it works. Now, we don't need to do that anymore because you don't need 80 milligrams twice weekly because we all know that it's interesting. The studies that we are using for regulatory approval are almost never what we're doing in practice because single arm accelerated studies, yes, it gets the drug approved, but you're not using it as a monotherapy. And randomized phase three studies are also not typically what you're doing because no one's really using bortezomib like Boston and relapse. So I'm typically combining Selenexor once weekly with the partner drug that's the best for that patient. It may be a CD38 antibody if they're cancer low. It may be a PI also if they're cancer low. It may be an IMID if they want an all oral regimen and they have good blood count. So fortunately, the STOMP study gives you options of dosing with each of those drugs. So it's great to have that option. And I think it's obviously going to have a tough sell because of the T-cell redirection because they're looking so effective. But I think in, especially people who are not ineligible for T-cell redirection or post-T-cell redirection, those, it's a good thing to keep in mind. You also commented on some work on venetoclax and myeloma. I guess we saw follow-up or final data survival from the Bellini study, one of the more interesting trials, I think, in myeloma. I guess really one of the first, maybe the first example of really personalized biomarker-driven decision-making can you kind of summarize uh, what we know about venetoclax? What, if anything, we learned at ASH from this uh, final analysis? Yeah, the personalized medicine is right on because uh, up till now, we don't segment patients very much. I would love to get to lymphoma type of fractionation of follicular or DLBCL, but we're not there yet. But I think this is our closest effort because it showed that venetoclax Vendex versus Vendex placebo, as expected, the addition of venetoclax improves response rate, improves PFS but there was worsening OS, which is always uh, puzzling. And most of those deaths were from infections. But when you drill down to it, we know that venetoclax targets BCL2, which is particularly seen in overexpression in 11-14 myeloma. And that subgroup had an unprecedented PFS benefit. It was around 0.1, which means 90% improvement. And really speaks to the personalized nature of that. That subgroup not only had that hazard ratio for PFS, but their overall survival hazard ratio was not worse. If anything, it was almost about 40% better. It's a small number of patients, 35, but it's because of the Bellini study. It's just a cautionary tale. We've seen this now also with checkpoint inhibitors, where initially checkpoint imidin steroids showed better response in PFS, but harm. So it, it's, I think, a sign that when we do these studies, yes, we can use surrogate endpoints, but we can't forget about looking at OS to make sure there's no harm. And I think that's why the FDA put a halt on venetoclax-based studies in myeloma. But I think for 1114, it's a game changer. And I think I would use it as soon as I could. Yeah, you made that comment in your talk. I'm actually jotted it down that you use it as soon as you could. What does that actually translate to for practical purposes? When do you generally bring it in outside a trial? Because I think the frontline transplant and maintenance data are so embedded and so hard to displace. If a patient relapses from that, then I would use venetoclax in the first salvage regimen. And the other time, I just had a patient yesterday in clinic who is 11-14, and despite getting DVRD and transplanted, she still has 11-14 detectable by fish. So I'm going to try venetoclax as a consolidation for her because I can tell that this is her residual disease. She's had a great debulking of her myeloma. Her paraproteins went down, but it's almost like I don't even need single-cell sequencing. I know that she has residual 11-14 myeloma, I might go back to LEN maintenance after that, but I feel like she's had LEN before. It didn't get rid of this disease. So might as well try something innovative. But usually I save it for first relapse. And is that as a single agent or you combine it with other stuff? 
No, I think, unfortunately, we're not quite at the CML, BCR label type of targeting. It still does better with combination because the monotherapy response rate, even in 11-14, albeit in heavily treated patients, which was a blood paper by Moreau, was about 40%. So it's not 100%. So I think as the adage is in myeloma and relapse in all of myeloma, you pretty much need combination strategy. What have you seen in terms of tolerability of venetoclax in patients with uh, myeloma? Obviously, the issue of uh, TLS comes up in CLL. I don't think that's much of an issue with myeloma. But what about cytopenias? And also, you hear sometimes I hear about GI intolerance or GI toxicity. What have you seen in your patients? Very little, actually. We don't see a lot of constitutional symptoms. We do see some thrombocytopenia. We don't see a lot of TLS. We don't have an extensive ramp-up period. Just the one cautionary tale is in terms of what combination I use. Because the PIs are the best studies, I usually use either bortezomib or carfilzomib. And because I'm using in the relapse, I tend to use carfilzomib. So one thing to keep in mind there is the drug-drug interaction with venetoclax, which is uh, notorious. So a lot of antihypertensives, for example, that you would need to use carfilzomib may interact with venetoclax. So just a cautionary tale to check with your pharmacist or do your drug interaction checks with the venetoclax. So let's talk a little bit about CAR-T. Without going through all the details, maybe you can just kind of provide a broad overview of where we're at with CAR-T and then what we learned uh, globally again and some of the big uh, developments at ASH. Yeah, I think obviously the IDSL is the approved CAR-T and that was their initial experience. And just in a very selected population, we saw a response rate of 80%, PFS of nine months, very encouraging data with six prior lines of therapy. But interestingly, the OS was uh, much better than that nine months. It was actually over 20, approximately two years, which tells us that you can salvage these post-CAR-T failures. So that's great. I think some of the limitations have been this tremendous cherry picking of patients with limited slots and availability. If you take 100 myeloma patients who are relapsing, how many can actually get to a CAR-T with all the nuances involved? Siltacel, which is the next CAR-T, obviously had outstanding response rates of 98%. The PFS itself is going to be over two years, which is amazing, which of course begs, what could the OS be? We don't even know. Updates we got from ASH this year, the 21217, which is the PI3 kinase inhibitor adding to IDASEL, did not seem to do much yet. We got the update with the PFS, as I alluded to, from Cartitude 1 with the more than two-year PFS, and also Cartitude 2, which is obviously, if this works so well and advanced myeloma patients, what about less heavily treated? where their T-cells might be better, but could you get more toxicity? We saw the same efficacy. And with a small sample size of 20 patients, the toxicity looks encouraging. The overall CRS and neurotox was comparable. Slight 10% grade three plus CRS, but I think it's small numbers. But overall, I think the toxicity is very encouraging. And I think one of the big differences that we're learning in myeloma is that in this heavily treated population, you don't have a lot of ways of controlling the disease. And so when you go to CAR-T and advanced myeloma, you might incur more CRS. In the less heavily treated population, not only will their T-cells be better, but you can probably control their disease going into CAR-T, and that may confer a benefit as well. Incidentally, I noticed on one of your slides, I have to ask you, I think the binding domain of Siltacel is from the llama. Is that yeah. the animal, the llama, really? Yeah, yeah. And there's two binding domains, whether, you know, how much of that is responsible for the lower dose, the binding affinity, but but yeah, it's a different construct. So it's kind of interesting. Interesting. Yeah, well, that does lead into the issue. Of looks indirectly like it's maybe a little bit more effective than IDASEL, you know, with all the hazards of comparing indirectly. But we have seen, you know, in breast cancer this fall at ESMA, we saw 
huge trial in breast cancer comparing it to antibody drug conjugates, which everybody thought was going to be the same, and yet one was way better. And it had a double warhead, too. So I don't know exactly what the construct of Silta cell, but is there anything about the way it's put together that makes would maybe raise the question whether it might be more efficacious? It's a good question. I do believe that the double binding may conf- that's conjectured as part of the reason for the high efficacy, but but clearly the dose is so different. You know, 0.75 for siltacel versus 450 for idacel. I mean, clearly these are very different constructs. So I think unless there's a head-to-head comparison, it's hard to say too much. But I do agree that we're not, we're probably not going to get a head-to-head comparison. But I personally I agree that the median lines of prior therapy, the refractoriness, to me they're not that different. I would be willing to concede like a PFS difference of you know maybe three four months. But when you're comparing nine to twenty-four plus months, that's just amazing. Of course, the other thing is the non-ICANS neurotoxicity movement issues that they saw early on. Can you comment on that? Have you seen that yourself? And it looks like maybe the newer trials, you're not seeing that. So how do you put that all together? We actually, one of our patients, unfortunately, did have that Parkinsonian feature and it was written up and published in, I think, Nature of Medicine. I think we've learned a lot. I think the components of avoiding these are trying to control the disease well with effective bridging. It's monitoring closely for neurotoxicity with handwriting analysis. Sometimes it's not always going to slap you in the face that this patient's having neurotox. So the handwriting analysis, the early interventions with the CRS and steroids, there was a skittishness initially because we didn't know how steroids was going to affect the CAR-T. But I think neurotox is way more important. We're getting so complacent that these are phase one studies giving these amazing results. But part of phase one studies is safety. And I think we have a huge learning curve. And we've now seen that with the later patients, the rates of severe neurotox has gone tremendously down. So I think the phase one is doing its job. The learning curve is being transmitted across the world as global experience evolves. And I think neurotox has been quite manageable. There's so much data coming out on bispecifics, maybe a little bit of an overview of where we are with bispecifics. What are the ones that seem to be most closely lined up to maybe get FDA approval? And where do you see this heading long term? Do you think they're going to be used before CAR-T, after CAR-T, consolidation? Where do you see all this heading? So bispecific come in three flavors, targeting BCMA, GPRC, and FCRH5. I think the CRS rates across the board are pretty comparable, ranging from 60 to 80 percent, but primarily low grade. All are showing great efficacy, 50 percent to as high as 80 percent. And again, some of them are smaller numbers. I think some of the differences will be in the toxicity profile. Infection is a big one. We're seeing a grade three higher infections in the BCMA targeting unusual infections like CMV reactivations, fungal infections, other types of viral infections. And of course, part of this could be due to the heavily pretreated nature of myeloma. Patients who might not normally have been alive are now being kept alive. However, the pushback to that is you're not seeing that with GPRC5D, which is also a heavily treated population. And it speaks to the MOA. And by that, we do know that when you knock out BCMA, you knock out antibody production. You get a high incidence of hypogamma, probably up to 70%. And multiple studies are showing that BCMA-treated patients are not getting good COVID antibody responses to the vaccine. And multiple BCMA studies are showing COVID-related deaths. So I think it's important to keep in mind for the BCMA-treated category, IVIG for hypogamma, CMV monitoring, and keeping the COVID therapeutics. We now have the AstraZeneca product that is for prevention of 
COVID in patients who don't have antibodies. And so I've been using that in my BCMA patients because they don't respond. And despite three or four doses of the vaccine. So infection is one. Cytopenias is another. We're seeing a little bit more cytopenias with the BCMA than the, the talketamab GPRC5D and maybe sevastimab is a little bit in between. But talketamab does have you give you the skin and uh, taste issues and nail issues. So GPRC is expressed in heavily keratinized tissue. So that explains the nails and also the skin, palm or plantar peeling. The taste is a little bit more difficult, maybe salivary gland expression. But in our center, we actually published, uh, presented a study at ASH this year, a poster from our nurses that of 90 patients that we've treated with talketamab, only one patient came off for non-PD. But that said, we've had a learning curve. So we're very proactive with supportive care. And sevastimab also, and I think is, again, a completely unique drug in that no other drug in that FCRH5 category showing single agent response rate. I think to answer your question about where does it belong, I have this slide where I do a hypothetical randomized study between a CAR-T and a bispecific. And when you think about it that way, first is that at a moment that a patient's progressing, and you know at Sinai, as I alluded to earlier, I think we've had now over 70 patients go to CAR-Ts, but the challenge has been availability, both on clinical trials and in the real world. And so when the CAR-T studies were going on, it's, these are global studies. Each site gets one slot at a particular time. You don't get to pick when you're getting that slot. So you review your list of patients and say, okay, who's progressing and measurable at this moment? And who can actually wait the four weeks? So there's a selection and who gets to sign consent that is not happening in bispecific. Then there's the time that the patient has to be alive and able to control the disease and meet the eligibility again in four to six weeks, which eliminates a, a sizable percentage of heavily treated patients who are very explosive disease. And then there's the bridging chemo that you're giving. Admittedly, in heavily treated patients, you're not going to get profound responses, but maybe if it's contributing one to two months, that could impact a comparator study. And then there's, of course, the cytopenia and supportive care for CAR-T. That said, you're one and done. You're not doing any maintenance therapy. And on the other hand, the bispecific is off the shelf. You don't have any patient selection, bridging chemo, PFS confounding from the bridging chemo, and all of that stuff. So if you were going to compare them head to head, I think the PFS of bispecifics is probably going to be in the order of eight to 12 months, which means that a CAR T is going to have to be much better than that, given all the issues we talked about to be warranted, not to mention the costs, et cetera. But so that's my take on it. But I think we're going to need both. I think for explosive disease, you're going to need the bispecifics for indolent young patients who live far away. CAR T's are tremendous. And I think sequencing is, of course, the other question. We did present data that, fortunately, you seem to be able to go from one T-cell redirection to another, because theoretically, there was a concern that if your T-cells are exhausted, can you go to another one? But with the combination strategies going on, you can combine bispecifics with DARA, with pomalidomide, and you can also go from one bispecific to a different target. So I think it's nice to be able to do these different options, and of course, earlier lines of therapy for both CAR-T and bispecifics is going to be eagerly awaited. So I love uh, hypothetical trials. What do you think about a trial that looks at, you know, let's say, DARA VRD induction transplant eligible patients, and then you randomize between transplant, CAR-T, and bispecifics at that point? Absolutely. I think uh, it's a great idea. I think they're the only, CAR-T might be more competitive because it's a one and done thing, right? So unless we could get to the point where we really know we're targeting a clone that's not eradicatable by other measures, the bispecific having to treat to progression. Although 
we have a natural experiment in New York in the peak of 2020 COVID. We paused a lot of patients because of safety. We didn't know what we were doing. And I have to say, the vast majority of patients did not progress with holds of therapy. So I think we're still early in the learning phase of these bispecifics. Do you need to give this forever on a particular schedule, or can you start dose attenuating, going to a maintenance schedule? Still early phase one experience. Well, you know, they've got intermittent androgen deprivation and prostate cancer. Maybe you just use the bispecifics till the MRD gets negative and then stop therapy for a while. I don't know. It's a game-changing question to be even asking, right? I literally have a patient who was supposed, we had a discussion about hospice two and a half years ago, and now he's in complete remissions on two different bispecifics, and he's actually depressed because he didn't think he'd be alive. And so the fact that you're asking this question about intermittent dosing is something we've never been able to do in myeloma because if your PFS is three to four months, where is the intermittent coming from, right? This concludes our program. Special thanks to Dr. Chari, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Oncology Today.